Hello and welcome to Stig Abel's Guide to Reading, a podcast in which I talk about books that mean something to me and to a special guest. It's being made in conjunction with my own book, Things I Learned on the 628, which is out in November 2020, an account of a year I spent reading books on my commute, if you can remember such a thing, and came up with various theories about different types of literature, from crime fiction to American classics, from Shakespeare to poetry. And this week, we will be in the lofty halls of English classics. In my book, I talk about two, the little-known The Female Quixote by Charlotte Lennox, the only novel ever reviewed by Samuel Johnson, and the beginning of Anthony Pohl's A Dance to the Music of Time. And on today's show, my lovely guest is the man of letters, Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator and author of numerous books, including most recently Right to the Point. Sam, hello. Hello. Um, so the idea of this podcast is that Sam and I will each name a book in the baggy canon of English classics and then we'll talk about it. Um, Sam, before we start, I found a couple of definitions of a classic. I want to see if you agree with them or not. Uh, this is allegedly Mark Twain, though we all know that every quote that's attributed to Mark Twain probably isn't true. Uh, but he said, something that everyone wants to have read and nobody wants to read. <laughs> I think there's probably some truth in that, um, but it's a slightly pessimistic view, isn't it? Um, I've got another more optimistic one. Yeah. Frank Commode, a classic is patient of interpretation. The idea that it means something to different people. I think that's probably more positive. I think that's a more expansive, you know, you can go somewhere a bit with that. I mean, the Mark Twain one, I remember there was that French sort of academic dandy, um, Pierre Bayard, who wrote a book called Comment parler des livres qu'on ne l'a pas lu. Um, sorry, my French is terrible, but how to talk about books you haven't read, in which he argues yeah. that his entire job as an academic was to talk about books he hasn't read. Um, you know, I think obviously getting the canon under your belt or s- as much of it as you can is kind of important if you're going to be going on to talk about books and think about books seriously or, or just are interested in you know a sense of where the culture is. But, you know, you'd have to accept that you're going to find some classics boring. You're going to find some classics you don't get round to reading. I mean, I think everybody has huge gulfs in what they read. But I, I think the idea that you define a classic by being a book which won't give you pleasure is a terrible mistake. Most of them survive because they do. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, are you aware that in David Lodge's novel about academics, um, I think it's probably the first one, um, he he has that game humiliation oh it's a great game it's a great game I, 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 where you sit around and the, the way you score points is you name a book you haven't read and you get a point for a book uh, for everyone in the room who has read it so the idea is or pretends know, to have read it we should say well yeah or pretends to have read it but the, in the book uh, a professor of english says he's never read hamlet <laughs> and he because he, he's, he's so desperate to win the game because he's a horrible competitive man and he uh, he wins the game because everyone in the room has read Hamlet and then he gets fired from his job as an English professor uh, <laughs> uh, for doing it. Uh, shall we start with an admission then, Sam? What would be your humiliation book? What would my humiliation book? Um, oh, God, I my mind's gone blank. Um, there are lots of people I've never read any of. You've you mentioned Anthony Pohl, and I'm ashamed to say I've read none of The Dance of the Music Time, even though everybody says it's wonderful. Um yeah, I hadn't read it till last. I hadn't read it till last year at all, and everyone was sort of looked askance at me. I mean, and the thing is, I quite liked it, and I thought it was pretty good, and it's an interesting phenomenon. But um, I, in the book, actually, I talk about it. It just felt very quiet to me, very, very of its time. You know, 
uh, a relatively privileged guy talks up, you know, puts his school friends and other friends thinly veiled into his his into his book. It just felt like something very much of its time. Yes, no, I, I mean, I, there's a lot of books that I think, you know, I haven't read that I kind of know I'd enjoy and just haven't got round to them. I mean, one of the odd things I think about being someone who writes about books professionally as a journalist rather than as, say, as, as a scholar, is that you end up with a very weird sort of landscape of reading because you go to, you know, if, if like me, your, your background is, you know, you were, you were swatty at English at school, you know, you read a lot of the classics as, you know, GCSE and A-level texts, and then you go on to university and, you know, you, you do a bit of studying and you therefore get thrashed through quite a lot of the, the sort of mainstream of the canon. And then you start writing about books that have come out in the month you're writing about them. So anything that I haven't read between the ages of about, you know, 25 and 46 that wasn't published then, you know, I'm very unlikely to have read. Yeah. So I've sort of read all the classics I was going to read by my mid-20s and obviously the books I read for pleasure that were contemporary novels and so forth. But then... Essentially, for the last 10 or 15 years, it's been very rare I've had the chance to read a book that isn't, you know, newly published. It's a shame, isn't it, Sam, really? that Because one of the things I've quite li- I like doing before I'm writing this book is just realising big errors, you know, big er- errors which I'd never read. You know, I'd never uh, read Zora Neale Hurston, for example. I'd never even probably heard of her until I was doing this book. And she was this great American author of the sort of mid-20th century. And so I read a bit of her, you know, I got to read Moby Dick, I got to read Proust, I've never read any Proust for this book. It's probably quite a good idea to occasionally just think, well, imagine I was sort of 18 again and trying to read books that have, that have mattered. It's quite a good thing to try and do, maybe. I, I think it's, it's a brilliant thing to do. And with, you know, I, like you, haven't read Zora Neale Hurston, but because she wrote about Zora Neale Hurston recently, or relatively in the last couple of years, you know, I was kind of hip to her by Zadie Smith. And I thought, right, I've I've got to read Zora Neale Hurston because she seems to be wonderful and important. Um, and then obviously didn't. I mean, I, you know, an ancestor of your your reading on the train book is um, my friend Andy Miller's book. The, um, it's called the now the year of reading dangerously. I think it was originally called the book of self-improvement. He spent about 10 years being about to write this book and didn't quite get around to it, but he was doing exactly that. You know, he worked as an editor in Canongate, you know, kind of, feisty independent publishing house and so was very much involved with current present day newly published books and he decided right I'm going to go away and read the classics and he sort of did very programmatically um and then wrote a book about you know what he thought of Moby Dick and what he thought of Ulysses and it's a brilliant book um and it's that uh, that impulse I very much kind of salute I think I've, I've got to try and find a way of doing it maybe I should write a book about it yeah, that's the only way I do it. The only way of reading about these books is actually to try and write one. Uh, I'm sure. Is it Disraeli said every time I want to read a book, I write one, or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Although, like all these things, I'm sure he didn't actually say it. Now, uh, the book you you've picked is one I actually did do at school and a little bit at university, and I think probably quite a lot of people, maybe not these days, do it at school so much. But certainly when I was at school, which would have been what 25 years ago, it was. I think it was fairly what widely done. It's the Canterbury. Tales by Chaucer, which is basically a poem so big it's almost the first novel, isn't it? Well, it does behave very like a novel. You're right. Um, I mean, one of the things that's lovely about 
that collection, um, collection of poems, whatever you want to call it, collection of stories, um, and indeed Chaucer itself, is it's is it's many in one. You know, it's like cheating on your desert island on your desert mm-hmm. island book because if you take the Riverside Chaucer, you've got many many books in there, um, and Canterbury Tales itself contains many many stories and books. It's incomplete, of course. Um, I think one of the real joys of Canterbury Tales is that it is so various. And, you know, you go, right, he's there, sort of the father of English poetry, as he's sometimes called, standing at the kind of head of head of the canon, really, you know, upstream even from Shakespeare. And what you've got is, is this thing that, you know, Bakhtin called the novel polyphonic. Um, and it is polyphonic. It's many, many voices. It's, it's, you've got a frame story, the general prologue, and we, you know, as, as we were all taught when we were kind of 15, you know, he, he nicked the idea from Boccaccio's Decameron that you have, you know, before that, I guess, even the, the Thousand and One Nights, where you have a frame story, which is these guys on a pilgrimage and they're a kind of cross-section of medieval society. And they decide on their pilgrimage that they're going to tell stories. The host, Harry Bailey, who's a kind of, you know, runs a pub, essentially, says, I know what we'll do to, to amuse ourselves. We'll have a competition and there's, a, I think, free bed and board for the winning story. And they'll take turns telling a story. And the idea originally was that they were going to tell two stories each um, on the way to Canterbury and then two stories each on the way back. So it should have been four times as long as it is, roughly. Um, but within that, you get this amazing jostling of tones and registers and you know this might anticipate Shakespeare you know whose who's negative capability was off the scale there is you know the Knight's Tale which I just reread for this is, is a kind of courtly romance chivalric romance is kind of quite highfalutin in some ways and it's full of you know elaborate symbolism and and then immediately followed by the Miller's Tale which is basically a succession of dirty jokes and a sort of shaggy dog yeah. story and so there's a massive kind of knockabout going on in there and a babble of voices. And I think it's the kind of human plurality of it that's so attractive and, and makes it so, you know, honestly, such a pleasure to read now. It doesn't feel like a duty. It doesn't feel like a book you have to have read and don't want to read. And it feels very, very modern. If you, I mean, we'll talk about the language in a moment because the language is obviously the very opposite of, of modern, but it feels very modern, not least because it probably was never meant to be finished it's sort of arch in, in its in its own kind of expansiveness because there's no way he could have had two there two on the way but i mean none of the pilgrims even tell well, i'm not sure even every pilgrim tells one story certainly no one tells more than one and no one tells anywhere near four so there's a feeling actually that this was never you know we all know how hard it is to end a series you know i was thinking about this in conjunction with game of thrones or anything like that you know all the fuss that you get about endings and how difficult they are this seems to be a, be a collection that, that always knew it was never going to be ended because it was effectively intent, attempting something so full of life that a sort of neat ending would have been impossible. No, and I don't think it would have it would have mattered necessarily because it's, I mean, I'm sure, you know, proper Chaucer scholars might at this stage be jumping up and down going, no, 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 you forget certain things were supposed to end. Or, you know, there, I'm sure there's academic debate about that. But to me, as a reader, it doesn't feel like it's important that it's not complete because, you know, it's not one of those sort of top down structures where, and you know, where, where 
you know, he's trying to create this sort of crystalline artifact. It's rowdier than that. You know, and, and yeah. as I said, Miller's tale coming in, you know, right at the beginning, he presents what, what looks like it's going to be this quite decorous, great chain of being sort of, you know, account of medieval society and the three estates and the, you know, the, the, those who work and those who fight and those who, who pray. And that structure is immediately kind of disrupted because the miller sort of is drunk and he yeah. pushes in. And it's originally supposed to be, I think, the monk who comes after the knight, you know, because the knight starts because obviously he's the, he's the highest in social status and he's this, you know, very revered figure. But, you know, the plan goes out the window on tale two. And I think that's part of of what's so attractive about Chaucer is that, you know, human sort of, vivacity and randomness and jostling you know un- the grand plan is always removed from the ground up you know which is a very literary sort of you know, it's very much what successive generations of writer have said you know that you, you you aren't creating something sort of architectural you're creating room for characters and ideas to kind of jostle and speak over each other and push push through and push forward so even you know in the knight's tale which is you know ostensibly very very sort of formal you can sense that Chaucer's sort of having a bit of a laugh you know there are these two very drippy kind of um knights called Palamon and Arsite who who fall in love with the same woman and it's it's um but they're sort of not terrifically well differentiated as characters and you know, there, you sense, I think, no writer with Chaucer's abundant sense of irony and mischief and humour, you know, won't be slightly guying the way in which, you know, they peer, look out of a tower and see the beautiful Emily, you know, frotters as any lily frolicking in the field. Um, and they sort of clutch their chests and cry out in the agony of love and sort of fall to the ground and start you know, woe is me, alas, alack, my life must end here. Um, you know, he's kind of laughing at them at the same time as as they're, you know, doing their doing their role. And I think that's right. It's the archness of it is is it feels very modern in that it is very ironic. It's very mocking. And you know, the concept in a lot of the stories, uh, I don't quite know if I'm pronouncing this right, is the idea of one story quites the previous one, which is in the sense of. And the, the the Miller's drunken tale. He tells a tale which slags off a carpenter. So a carpenter then tells a tale about a, 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 a Miller who's an idiot. <laughs> yes, it's the and, Reeve, um, isn't it? the carpenter. I think the Reeve is the carpenter. Yeah. And he so he takes he so he's he's so annoyed by uh, by the carpenter uh, being a, a, the baddie in the story or the, the the fool in the story that he tells a story about a Miller. And it's a bit like a storytelling as rap battle, isn't it? That, and that that sort of life that is in uh, the tales is. Um, the frame tale and the tales themselves are so brilliantly intertwined. And perhaps the most famous version of that is one I did do at school, The Wife of Bath, where she's this fantastic gat-toothed and lusty woman who's been married lots of times and is an expert on married life. But the prologue to her tale is longer than the tale itself, I think. It's actually more memorable because, yeah, because she's telling the story about, she's trying to tell a story about uh, women because, again, it's quite misogynistic parts of uh, the Canterbury Tales. Yeah. Chaucer knows that because it's a bunch of often religious men who are misogynists, who don't really understand women. 
moaning about how awful women are. And then we get this fantastic woman, probably one of the great female characters in all of literature, actually, probably one of the first, um, certainly, maybe one of the greatest, the wife of Bath who barrels in and sort of tells her tale uh, to say to all these guys who've been moaning about women all this time, many of whom are kind of chaste monks who've never had anything to do with a woman since they they, they left home. Um, and so everything is kind of arch and knowing, isn't it? Yes. And I think there's there's that sort of, the sense that he's always drawn to, to, to kind of energy, you know, the sort of narrative energy, the life, you know, rather than to the sort of dry ideas. You know, the characters who are, you know, uh, if you like, least pious or most, you know, most human are the ones who leap off the page. So even in The Knight's Tale, you know, I mean, not only does, does the wife of Bath in her very person completely sort of, um, you know, throw everyone into the shade, you know, she'd choose the scenery. Um, but, you know, in The Knight's Tale, you have these sort of three temples, for instance, and the absolutely magnetic section is the Temple of Mars, where there's a description of all the blood and gore of, of battle. And it's suddenly, you know, that's colour. Colour just comes roaring off the page in Chaucer um, in a way that, that the sort of formulaic pieties of sort of medieval or classical myth that he puts in quite often, you know, he's 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 a bit less less invested in them as, as a writer, at least. And actually, I think when you read, if you read Shakespeare versus contemporaries and you read Chaucer versus his contemporaries, you feel the same thing, that there is a sort of, it's a star of a completely different nature when Chaucer's writing compared to his peers, I think. And I, in the same way, I think you do feel that with... Yeah. I mean, actually, another of his poems, The Parliament of Fowls, is a good example, because that's actually kind of quite a formally constructed sort of, you know, traditional symbolic setup in which all of these birds who come together are intended to represent different things. And there's a there's a kind of um, a matter at hand to do with love, which is supposed to be decided on St. Valentine's Day in a certain way. And yet it's the kind of detail of the individual species of birds that leaps off the page. I think one of the things that Chaucer is so attractive in as well is, is this thing of having a sense of humour. I mean, I, I remember the writer David Mitchell say to me once, which I thought absolutely stuck in my head, he said the difference between um, a great writer and a merely good one is that all the great writers are funny in one way or another. And I think yeah. it's good to have Chaucer as a sort of object instance of that because at the root of humour is that ability to see things in two ways at once. And I think that goes back to you know, negative capability, to polyphony, you know, this Bactinian idea. You, you know, if you're really, really seeing things in the round, as Chaucer obviously did, you're going to be funny. Funny if you say this. I think in my book I try and do a little list of the ones that occur to me, the least funny writers uh, in literature that I could think of. Uh, do you want to hear them? Yeah, I'd love to. See if you agree. Yeah, Ayn, Ayn Rand. Yes, you made me read yeah. Ayn Rand, you bastard. I, I, yeah, I did, I did. Uh, John Grisham, Tolkien, uh, Alice Walker, Paolo Coelho. Uh, it's a very weird list, but I was trying to think of ones where you just don't ever crack a smile, because I mean, Tolkien's a really good example of that, actually. There's nothing ever funny in all of Tolkien. I think that's probably right. I, I remember reading a very ingenious, and I thought spot-on piece by... Philip Hensher about Tolkien. I mean, years, five or six years ago. So 
long after the event, but for some reason he was going back and looking at Lord of the Rings. And he said, the thing about Tolkien is he's an absolutely terrible writer. And he produced <laughs> chapter and verse, you know, very persuasively as only Philip can, on why Tolkien's a terrible writer and why he made some of the worst and most ridiculous sentences ever committed to pin. But then he turned on a pin and said, and yet his world building was such yeah. a stupendous achievement that that overrides everything else. And maybe that goes to the David Mitchell point. Maybe Tolkien isn't a great writer, but he's great at something. And that's why he's yeah, not being funny. I, I think that's probably right, actually, because uh, I was actually, because I, I, I was cause trying to get my kids into, um, into Tolkien. And I, so I reread the books before them because I couldn't really remember them very well. And actually, there's bits. I, I mean, it's very digressive. And, you know, he was a med- medievalist. I mean, it's, it's not irrelevant to talk about Tolkien when you're talking about Chaucer, is it? Because he was clearly, he was clearly um, influenced. But I, I did think that uh, I, I read it again. And actually, there's moments where there's a bit in uh, when they're in Shelob's lair and Sam attacks Shelob to save Frodo, which made me think, actually... That was very well written, and it was. Uh, I hope we find it. Yeah, there's, there's, there's the scene where, where where Sam defends Frodo from uh, Shelob, and I remember just reading. That, I thought, as a battle scene, as a kind of scene about friendship and a scene about uh, of action, that did feel like very well written material. But there's there's a lot of bagginess in there, isn't there? Maybe that's, that's well. I do remember. Well. I mean, it's a long time since I've read Lord of the Rings, but I I remember even back then noticing you know, with dismay, that there was like hundreds and hundreds of pages during which one of the characters is just trundling along on the top of an end from one side of Middle Earth to the other um, and just has nothing to do. You know, it's just kind of like still on the end and we return to, you know, I mean, walking trees, goodness. But, I mean, actually, maybe Tolkien is another good point of contact for Chaucer because at least apocryphally, you know, he basically created Middle Earth and the story in order to be able to create the language. Yeah. You know, it was, he sort of reversed into being a novelist. He was actually just interested in in imaginary languages and creating Elvish. Um, which is the worst, which is the worst bit of it, of course. As soon as you get into the realm of Elvish poetry in The Lord of the Rings, uh, your heart does sag considerably. Yes, the long tale of Tolkien publishing, which involves sort of digging through his kind of grimy bottom drawer to produce yet more addenda to the Silmarillion, I think is, yeah. you know, <laughs> subject to the law of diminishing returns. But Chaucer's language. Yeah, let's talk about Chaucer's language. Because a lot of people listening to this will think, I can't read Chaucer now. I need to read it in translation. Uh, and I'm not sure that's true because I read it again this morning, having read it before. And I remember my, the way it was taught to me at school, Sam, I had this incredibly boring English teacher. I was taught English abysmally at school. And I remember the wife of Bath and uh, him just reading it out. And uh, basically the whole way I was taught Chaucer was this old man reading it out. And then periodically I was translating it into modern English. And that was it. Yeah. In defense of your English teacher, I don't know that reading it out is necessarily the worst thing. I mean, I think one of, you know, what we should sort of remember with Chaucer is that that quite a lot of it, and I was showing some of it to my, you know, because I was rereading and I was showing my nine-year-old and saying that, you know, why are you reading this big old looking book? And I said, well, look, this is Chaucer. Um, I said, it's not as hard as on the face of it, it looks. It's not hard like Anglo-Saxon. A lot of it is just decipherable ordinary English, only spelt weird. 
And if you read yeah. it out, you can get over some of that. I mean, of course, he was on the other side of the great vowel shift, um, whatever that was. And so it sounds a bit weird. Many people have probably, um, if you like, been, <laughs> been, been traumatised by English teachers, the same English teachers who, who laugh too loudly and showily at Shakespeare's jokes. Yeah. Um, who would be all in a one that April with her shooting shirt with the drought of nothing to the rota. And you know That's exactly how it was. And they do that stuff because they're like, this is this is how this is how the Chaucer Chaucer would have said it in his own age. But if you dial down the sort of weird Germanic accent, quite a lot of it, the rhythm of it helps you. You get used to the idea that there are certain words that you'll need to look up, you know, but you know that eclept means called or whatever or that yeah. you know wood might be mad or you know there are vocabulary items that are different and of course you know you're going to need to look those up but a lot of it is just you know a y instead of an i or an extra e on the end of a word um yeah and if you if you do read it aloud even read it aloud in your head you could get a lot further than you might imagine and a little crib by your by your side will will speed you along. I don't think the language is actually that hard. And so much of it is is wonderfully vivid. And I mean, you know, something I found, which is one a thing that I've has stuck with me, I think I stuck it joyously on Twitter was Aegeus's speech in the Night's Tale, where he says, This world is but a thoroughfare of woe, and we've been pilgrims going to and fro. And that's, you know, anyone can get that. That's the Veil of Tears yeah. line, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it, and it, it's almost you know you could read that in Shakespeare, you could read that in all sorts of people. And actually, the thing I'd say to people is, I've got this big old Riverside Chaucer, which is the sort of traditional big blue book of Chaucer. And actually, they have the difficult words at the bottom of the page. So when you see the word courage, which doesn't mean courage, it means sort of desire or 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 something like that. It just tells you that. There's a lot so of things in that direction in Chaucer that you wouldn't expect. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. Um, we better move on because I want to talk about my, my book. But I, I would encourage people to, because you're, you're so right. And I say this actually in, in the book I wrote. It's true of Shakespeare. It can look a bit intimidating to people. Actually, if you read yourself into it, read it every day for a couple of days, it's amazing how much easier it is on day three than it was on day one. Because you just get into the rhythm of it, don't you? The, and the, the rhyme in Chaucer helps as well. And the rhythm of it, you just you sort of read yourself into it, I think, a bit. Um Right, so the one I'm going to choose uh, sounds a bit obvious, but I'm going to do it anyway. Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, uh, which I read about every two years. I like it so much. Again, nearly ruined for me by an English teacher, but finally uh, I resurrected it. Uh, there's a famous quote, which you'll know from an Oxford philosopher, Gilbert Ryle, who was once asked whether he ever read novels. And he said, yes, all six every year. So basically he only read, <laughs> he only read Jane Austen. Where do you stand on Jane Austen, Sam? I'm... Sort of cautiously pro Austin. I mean, I I do think she's she's remarkable and great. I can't say Pride and Prejudice is not my favourite. Um, are you gonna Are you gonna do what all Jane Austen um, experts say and say persuasion is the best? Jane no, Austen. I'm not a Jane Austen expert at all. In fact, I'm I'm, I'm as I say when I say cautiously in favour, it's because I found I found persuasion. I was forced to read persuasion at school, and I found persuasion kind of boring. Um, the ones that I love are Emma, which seems to me to be yeah. fabulously kind of clever in the way it leads the reader down the garden path, you know, turns you round. Um, 
And Northanger Abbey, because it's so funny and silly and light. And so Pride and Prejudice, when I first read it, I thought, this is like the young visitors. It felt it felt just sort of very slightly, you know, it didn't have the richness and, and, and wickedness of Emma, I thought. And it didn't have that balls out silliness of Northanger Abbey. It's definitely not silly. I think that's right. The thing I reason I love, love it, I find Emma a bit annoying as a character, which I think is no bad thing. It's no sign of dispraise towards Austin because I think she's, it, it's written like that. She is a bit, uh, yes. a bit annoying. And- not as quite as bad as Fanny Price. Was it? Who was it? It was it Henry James who said the heroine is a little prig and the hero is a pompous ass in Mansfield yeah, Park, I that, which is I think that's about- true. And I put Mansfield Park as my least favourite uh, Austin. Uh, actually, I think the reason I love. Uh, Pride and Prejudice is, I think, it, the, the lightness of touch of how it's written is 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 truly magnificent. Sort of the, the aphoristic quality. I think that the romance, the central romance. So I, I, one of the things I've realised over reading all the books I did in that year is, is just what a rank sentimentalist I am uh, <laughs> as a person and a reader. You know, I love, I love. Um, you know, I, you know, there's that bit in Northanger Abbey where she talks about the telltale felicity of the pages coming to an end when you know a book, you know that, the, that everyone's going to get married and live happily ever after because you can see the pages of the book coming to an end. Yes. And she and she knew what she was doing with that. But I think that the, the Darcy-Elizabeth relationship is sort of beautifully, charmingly sentimental. But then also it's it's a bit arch as well. There's that famous line where uh, Darcy asks Elizabeth at the end, why did you, why did you, when did you know you were really falling for me? And she goes... I can date it just at the first time I saw your enormous house. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> and, 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 she, and she is joking with him because that's the relationship they have, which is kind of so brilliant. But also that is one of the, th- the through lines of the whole book. How do you possibly, if you have a family of girls who aren't going to inherit because the state is entailed on someone else, how are they going to live in the world? And actually they do need to look at the size of their husband's house or their prospective husband's house. So it's so it so there's a sort of archness there, which I think is is very charming. And Martin Amos said, and this is my almost my favourite piece of literary criticism ever, because I think it's so true. Is Pride and Prejudice makes us laugh at Mrs. Bennet, who is this? If people haven't read the book, is desperate for her kids to get married and is a bit thick and shouty and crass, and all she wants is for her daughters to get married well. And so the book mocks her. But it also turns every reader into Mrs. Bennett at the same time. Yeah. That's true. And, and, and the fact that she can carry that trick off where you're laughing at Mrs. Bennett for being shallow and materialistic, but you are Mrs. Bennett yourself. That's a thing. To, that's a that's a piece of work to have achieved that, I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like that, that um, lovely line in one of Auden's sonnets from China, you know, we are Lucy, Turton, Philip, we... Um, you know, it's, it's a, the, the, the one about Howard's end, yeah. which ends with that terrible, you know... Um, comes out into the garden with a sword, you know. <laughs> and I, I adore that line in Pride and Prejudice, and I agree with you. That's, I mean, it's also pre, it's a predecessor, isn't it, to Mrs. Merton's lovely, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> what was it, the first attracted you to the millionaire Paul Daniels? Um, <laughs> but I, it doesn't, for me, have quite the punch of that quiet line, you know, Emma, that was very badly done. Yeah, yeah. You know, if I it mean, feels to me, it, it's like a beautiful i mean i suppose maybe that's that's why you love it because it's a beautiful sort of confection um, I think that's exactly right. the, other thing, the other thing that's in it i think is um uh, lydia bennett who's the, the the flighty sister who marries wickham is in my top two least favorite characters in all of fiction well she has to deserve wickham doesn't she she does but, but and she's so awful and after she gets married to wickham which has nearly ruined the family and she comes back and says 
I'm going to have to walk into the house first because I'm the married daughter. Is And everyone else's life has nearly been ruined by it. It's so peculiarly self-centered. Do you want to know who my other least favorite uh, character is? In, in- yes. This is, again, it's a testament to the quality of the writing. It's not, I'm not saying a bad thing. Uh, Rabbit's son, Nelson Angstrom, uh, who in the Rabbit series is this, particularly when he's an adult, he's this weedy, whiny, pathetic, coke-sniffing, he has a sort of smear of a moustache, can't grow a proper moustache figure. And in all the Rabbit books, he is just, the last two particularly, when he's an an adult, I just hate him. I just think he's 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 just, he's the biggest dick in literature. (laughs) (laughs) That's a a bold claim, particularly as we've been talking about Mr Wickham. Yeah, 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 exactly. Anyone you hate in literature, Sam? The character, the, the, you know, as a person you hate, not as a how it's oh, characters I hate in literature. I'm going to have to come back to you on that one. I haven't got an instant. It's too big, isn't it? It's... Certainly, um, though you're bludgeoned into hating it. But you know, you mentioned Dane Rand. Um, <laughs> Dagny's. I mean, almost everybody in that book is loathsome, but in Atlas Shrugged. Um, but Ain does work very hard to make. Dagny's brother, um, you know, just uh, Jim, I think he's called Jim Taggart, um, you know, a sort of type of loathsomeness. But then because you know that you're being pushed into it by by Rand's bludgeoning prose, you kind of you kind of end up getting a certain amount of sympathy for him by the end, I suppose. Just finally, because I have to leave it here, I think, Sam, is, uh, do you talk about sentimentalism, which is probably true a bit of Chaucer as well as, as, as Jane Austen? I and people disagree with this. I wonder if you do. Do you have to like at least a character a little bit? No, I don't think you do. I, I mean, I, it's a good question because I think there is a sort of highfalutin literary critical position that says, "Oh, the most vulgar thing you can possibly say about a book is I didn't like it because I didn't identify with any of the characters." Um, but that is to slight or ignore, I think, the fact that you know in an ordinary circumstance identification one way or another is the way a reader gets into a book um and that writers who like Camus for instance set out to you know forestall identification who you know like the famous line that opens L'Etranger you know the um you know mother died yesterday or perhaps it was the day before yeah. You know, which is, I think as Julian Barnes said, you know, it's the most fantastic kind of punch in the face of an opening line. Um, and I think sort of literature in which they, they're purposely, you know, preventing you from sympathising with the character in a straightforward way um, is it, it's doing its job because it knows that the default is that you do. And that the default is you'll find somebody in a book. You know, you don't quite divide books into goodies and baddies, but you will you will find your sympathies will distribute themselves among the cast of characters one way or another. And it's a slightly odd way of reading not to at least acknowledge that, even if you go, look, here's a book where absolutely everybody's loathsome, which, you know, you could probably find. I mean, maybe Evelyn War would be somewhere you'd look for that. The Odd King's Game. Yeah. Book. You know, there are there are some writers who are like that. Um, but I'm not sure in the end, Sam, that's that's what I want. I mean, maybe I'm just, uh, you know, I kind of want a book to be a little bit huggable. No, I don't mind some... the ones that aren't. Um, but I think they're a sort of specialist subgenre in a way. I think most most readers of most novels are going to be looking for somebody who they can at least get a purchase on. Yeah. And that's very true of Jane Austen. And it's very true, just to take us back to Chaucer. That's the great thing about 
Chaucer is some of the people telling the stories, let alone the characters in the stories. I mean, the wife of Bath is one of you. You want to go for a pint of a uh, pint with the wife of Bath, wouldn't you? Yeah, but you wouldn't want to go home with her. No, <laughs> not afterwards. Not afterwards. No, one pint only. Legs kept firmly together and and and, and a clear sight of the exit. I think. Uh, Sam, uh, what a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for doing Thank this. You. Thanks, Jim.